everyone. Welcome to the Film for Fans podcast, the podcast from movie fans for movie fans. I am your host, Ryan Dunleavy, joined by my co-host, Rob Dunham. Hopefully I perform better than the team whose shirt I'm wearing. <laughs> well, at least better than their goalie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was ugly. That oh, was ugly. I just hope I don't drop the ball. Ah, <laughs> uh, but unfortunately, this is not a soccer podcast or a mediocre goalkeeper podcast or a mediocre goalkeeper podcast. So that would be fun because I think uh, we're both in the similar boats on that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Ah, uh, we have an excellent show for you. We will, of course, get into our box office. We'll give you a larger breakdown of Guardians of the Galaxy, which we did. If you follow the podcast, we did a live reaction show immediately outside the theater last week. Uh, so we'll we'll hit back up on Guardians of the Galaxy a little bit more in detail. And uh, we're going to review the second Mission Impossible movie on our ongoing series uh, leading up to Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning this summer. So we will hit Mission Impossible 2, which should be really fun. I look forward to it. All right, let's get it started. Uh, box office. Uh, as to the surprise of absolutely nobody... Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, number one in the box office. Mm-hmm. The question was always going to be number 118 million. Uh, Super Mario Brothers still racking in a big amount, 18 million. Uh, Evil Dead Rise came in third at 5.8 million. Uh, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. Uh, that did 3.2. And Love Again did 2.3. Both those last two movies were new this past weekend. Uh, Box office, what do you think? So, the main thing is that uh, Marvel, I guess, is a little disappointed with how Guardians of the Galaxy 3 started. Mm-hmm. But, in the last week, it has gone over, I think, $365 million now worldwide. Mm-hmm. So, I I think this is a movie that might end up making a good amount of money, despite underperforming, if you want to call it that. Yeah, Still over $100 million this open weekend. I think the underperformance has largely to do with how not great phase four has been. Mm -hmm. And when you roll out a bunch of not great movies in a row, um, people might be a little hesitant to just go out and see it. However, which we'll get to in a moment, I think the word of mouth will be very, will do very well for this movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's, uh, I I already went and saw it again in the theater because my brother had not seen it yet. And I think there might be a lot of people who go and see it more than once. Yeah, yeah, it's it's for sure. It's it's we'll get into that in a minute when we get into our deep review. But I think it's not going. I mean, normal drop off is like fifty to fifty five percent between week one and week two. I think it might do a little better than that. I think it might have. I mean, I could be wrong on that, but I think it might have a a softer landing mm-hmm. in week two than than what you'd normally anticipate on that. Uh, any other comments on the other box office figures? Uh, not really. I mean, there's really only one movie that <laughs> of, of any import. That's yeah. Out, so. Yeah. Um, I don't. I mean, I don't think on the podcast we we got to really preview it, so I'm not sure. Was that about the number you were expecting, or is it differ from what you might have expected? I think I might have expected a little bit higher number, but um, by no means so. I think it was like a. I don't think you could call it a flop. No. No. Um, I, I think we're past the point of the Marvel movies automatically running up 150 mm-hmm. million plus. Yeah. 
I think we're past that point of where we're at at this point. There's just not the level of excitement around it that there has been for the prior phases. Mm -hmm. And they should be aware of that by now. Okay. Uh, so that's uh, last week in the box office. This week in the box office, we have a number of movies that have come out. Um, all of them are relatively smaller releases, uh, but there, there's some interesting ones in there. Uh, you have Book Club, the next chapter, because everyone was clamoring after Book Club. I think it's about time they turned the page on the series. Oh, all right. <laughs> the highly anticipated sequel follows our four best friends. I know. The, there's a little euphemistic <laughs> language going on here. Uh, disinformation. Fake uh, news? Fake news. Okay. It's not All that right. kind of podcast. <laughs> it is not. Only only the real news here. Yeah, for the people. For the people. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this highly anticipated sequel follows our four best friends as they take their book club to Italy for the fun girls trip they never had. When things go off the rails and secrets are revealed, their relaxing vacation turns into a once-in-a-lifetime cross-country adventure. And the four women in question here are Diane Keaton, Jane Fonda, Candace Bergen, and Mary Steenbergen. So that is Book Club, the next chapter. Hmm. All right, next up, Blackberry. And Blackberry is the true story of the meteoric rise and catastrophic demise of the world's first smartphone, BlackBerry, is a whirlwind ride through the ruthless competitive Silicon Valley at breakneck speeds. And this stars Jay Baruchel and Glenn Howerton, Matt Johnson, Rich Summer, and Michael Ironside. Well. Baruchel, by the way. What? Baruchel. Baruchel. Yeah, I know I was going to only know that, that because right. I've seen him in a lot of things. He's so been in a I've lot heard, of stuff. I've heard his name a lot. He has. I recognize yeah. him. He's been in a lot of stuff. Premier Dragon. Mm -hmm. He's the uh, main character in that. Yeah. Uh, next up, we have Fool's Paradise. And this is a satirical comedy about a down on his luck publicist who gets his lucky break when he discovers a man recently released from a mental health facility looks just like a method actor who refused to leave his trailer. Uh, with the help of a powerful producer, the publicist helps the man become a huge star, even marrying his beautiful leading lady. Their adventures lead them to cross paths with drunken co-stars, irreverent house, unhoused action heroes, uh, unpredictable directors, super agent, and power-mad moguls. Fame and fortune are not all they're cracked up to be, and the two men must fight their way back to the things that matter most. Uh, so this has Charlie Day. Ken Young, Kate Beckinsale, Adrian Brody, Jason Sudeikis, Edie Falco, Jason Bateman, Common, Ray Liotta, John Malkovich. That's quite the cast. Yeah. Although, for a movie that I've literally never heard I mean, of until it is this week. A little bit confusing to me that the Shia LaBeouf uh, autobiographical documentary does not include <laughs> Shia LaBeouf the cast. <laughs> no, he he's in there. He's just the guy stuck in the trailer refusing okay. to come out. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> agreed yeah, yeah. uh-huh child yeah. above it immediately reminded oh what was that um that eddie murphy and um uh what's his name martin or uh, not martin short um steve martin oh movie. Uh, uh, boomerang what was it i forget the one the one where the actor refuses to work in their mm -hmm. movie so they hire 
the the guy who looks like Eddie yeah, Murphy. Yeah, I know, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't remember the title. Yeah. Anyway, uh, next up, Hypnotic. And Hypnotic is a movie that says, determined to find his missing daughter, Austin detective Danny Rourke finds himself spiraling down a rabbit hole investigating a series of mind-bending crimes where he will ultimately call into question his most basic assumptions about everything and everyone in his world. Aided by Diane Cruz, a gifted psychic, Rourke simultaneously pursues and is pursued by a lethal specter, the one man he believes holds the key to finding the missing girl, only to discover more than what he's bargained for. And this is Ben Affleck and Alice Braga. So that's Hypnotic. You have Knights of the Zodiac, which looks interesting. I've never heard of it. Uh, based on the international anime sensation, Knights of the Zodiac brings the Saint Cinema saga to the big screen in a live action for the first time. Um, Seiyu is a headstrong street teen spending his time fighting for cash while searches for his abducted sister. When one of his fights unwittingly taps into mystical powers he never knew he had, Seiya finds himself thrust into a world of warring saints, ancient magical training, and reincarnated goddess who needs his protection. Okay, so this is an animated anime movie. So that's why I hadn't heard of it. All right. Um, and there is Rally Road Racer. And Rally Road Racer is an animated film. And in Z, a rookie race car driver, gets the opportunity to compete against reigning champion of the rally car circuit. He must help a former driver turn mechanic Z. He must overcome treacherous terrain, race rivals, and unexpected obstacles. And uh, this has J.K. Simmons, Chloe Bennett, and Jimmy O. Yang. All right. Lots of entrance, Rob. It's book club for you, isn't it? I mean, I find it so relatable. <laughs> Come along, us hasn't gone to a foreign country with three of their other girlfriends to read books. Okay, if you're going with three other girlfriends to Italy, I think it's a whole different story. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that kind of podcast. It's definitely not that kind of podcast. What, 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 what intrigues you the most? I, I don't know if there's anything that intrigues me, honestly. Okay. <laughs> um story-wise most interesting one to me is blackberry mm -hmm. and i've always found that kind of rise and fall of tech really interesting and there's usually some executive up at some point who makes a terrible decision and or they they choose a terrible direction and, and it leads to disaster so that stuff kind of fascinates me from a leadership perspective mm -hmm. uh so i'm curious if we're going to get any of that in that movie uh, the cast in Fool's Paradise seems interesting. Mm -hmm. but Yeah, it sure does. Yeah. Who's directing that, by the way? I can look at that. The director is Charlie Day. Interesting. Yeah, so Charlie Day is directing that. Charlie Day is, of course, uh, one of the actors most known for uh, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. I'm sorry, he's most known for being a Lego astronaut in the Lego movie. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Okay, so that's what's opening up in the box office this week. So lots of movies, lots of movies this week. And uh, so plenty of options for you. Uh, we just want to hit on a couple of quick uh, stories, uh, one of which is trailers. We got a couple of trailers this week. If you saw mm -hmm. Guardians of the Galaxy, you got updated trailers for Dune Part 2 and for Oppenheimer. Uh, 
we both what, have watched what, both of them. Yeah, what's interesting is I saw the Dune Part 2 trailer, the one showing I went to, and the Oppenheimer trailer, the other showing I went to. Interesting. They were not both. They I had not, both of them I at the show that I went to. Yeah. Okay. All right. So uh, let's start with Dune 2. What did you make of the Dune 2 trailer? Um, you know, it looks like more of the amazing, breathtaking, mm-hmm. expansive scenery that we saw in the first one. And I mean, I loved everything about the first one, obviously. It was yeah. my favorite movie of the year. Yeah. So, um, I I'm not a I'm not worried about being disappointed by mm-hmm. this movie. I just think it's just going to be amazing. Yeah. So. Yeah, and now we get more of the story. We get more of the story unfolding. A lot of the first movie was introductions and world building, and now we get more into the story for Doom Part Two, and you can get a sense of that right away from the trailers and the direction it's going to take. Uh, basically, to me, this this trailer is just like wetting your whistle for what's to come Mm -hmm. like i don't think anyone is like i don't think everyone's looking for surprises here it's just it's just a case of like okay no we definitely need to see this movie it's definitely going to be awesome looking forward to it oppenheimer what'd you make of that trailer i mean i've obviously been excited about this movie since i heard it was gonna come out so yeah there's not much that could (laughs) excite me more about the movie i'm just I'm ready for it to be here. I'm just ready to see what what his take on all this was. I am fascinated to find out what the framework for this movie mm-hmm. is going to be. Because even in even in Dunkirk, which is a fairly straightforward historical movie, he still messed with time. And he still he still had an interesting narrative structure that he went with. And so I'm really, really curious to see what he's going to do with this. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I can't wait. It's 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 gonna be amazing. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, so let's move on to our discussion. And uh, we have two discussion items for you today. The first discussion item is, of course, we'll do a, let's do a full breakdown of Guardians of the Galaxy. We gave you some of our initial thoughts on our live uh, instant reaction podcast last week. And now we'll give you a full breakdown. Uh, so now that you've had time to see it again and to think about it a little bit more, Rob, mm-hmm. uh, what are your observations about Guardians of the Galaxy? Uh, I think that it is everything, and I said this in the mm-hmm. reaction podcast that it's everything that the first two were. Mm-hmm. That it's funny, it's um got soul, uh, it's got a crazy off the walls plot that would make no sense. If you tried to explain <laughs> to someone, um, and as I was thinking about it more and more, the thing that makes Guardians of the Galaxy as a series in this movie stick out. We've talked about the overload sometimes when it comes to marvel content especially trying to keep up with all those tv shows and all the movies yeah my brother even mentioned this when he went to see movies he's like i haven't really been watching everything that comes out because there's so much i can't keep up anymore that guardians of the galaxy is its own thing Mm -hmm. like there are connections to the other movies and characters in the universe but it's really its own thing yeah and it's always been its own thing and i think that's what makes it unique and makes it quality because mm-hmm. you could go to this movie now granted if you knew a little bit of the story before you saw it it might have a little more resonance to you emotionally but i think someone who had never been to a superhero movie at all could still enjoy this movie and you can't really say that about a large majority of yeah. the movies that marvel or dc put out yeah yeah it's true um the initial thing that stuck out to me as I thought about it over the last week is 
I hold it up in contrast to Thor Love and Thunder. Because both the Thor movies and the Guardians of the Galaxy movies are the ones that probably have the highest level of humor and, and are trying to include humor in that. Now, Thor's been a little up and down, but Thor Love and Thunder had a terrible time navigating the tonal shifts, mm-hmm. the, the harsh seriousness with yeah. the humor. And they didn't do it very well. And it was stark. And it was just like, am I watching two different movies that they just mashed together? Because mm-hmm. uh, the tones were so dramatic and different. And it just it felt jarring to watch. This movie had a deep emotional storyline that was really trying to get you into a, a bit of a darker place mm-hmm. with Rocket's backstory, but it had lots of humor and they navigated that perfectly. And I think a lot of that is down to the depth and quality of the characters and their differences. Yeah. I mean, with Thor, you're relying a lot on Thor. Mm-hmm. But with the Guardians of the Galaxy, each one of those characters has their own personality and their own idiosyncrasies and their own things they bring to the team when you have that interaction yeah it leads to more of a natural emotional reaction i think when um i don't know if we want to say spoiler alert i mean we're talking <laughs> about the movie now um spoiler alert spoiler alert um when rocket dies like the the reaction from star lord peter quill seems very authentic mm-hmm. uh it didn't seem cheap it didn't seem put in there just to be there it seemed like that's this is how he would actually react you know and i feel i felt like that across the board that yeah all of the emotions and the reactions were authentic to the characters yeah and you don't build that expectation or that Mm -hmm. understanding without going through like that's two whole movies they had Mm -hmm. and then the other appearances they made it's all built into this yeah and it feels very much like these characters are acting the way they're supposed to act and they would act. I I hadn't thought about that angle of why that works better there than it did in Thor, but I like it. I think, I think there's some validity to that. Um, I also want to say, I just think James Gunn did masterfully mm-hmm. in this as opposed to where YTD, I, I don't know. I don't know what happened. He's such a good director. Mm-hmm. I don't know exactly what happened. Uh, sometimes you hear stories later about the studio interfering or, you know, they're having a hard time pulling pulling the different elements of the script together or something like that. But Gunn knew how to navigate that and just struck the right tonal balance at every moment appropriately. Mm-hmm. Um, and and being able to weave that in that that heartfelt story in in amongst all of the tremendous humor uh, really, really worked well. And, and I was glad to see it. Um, what else, anything else that worked for you? Um, I think, uh, you know, the other thing, other side of that, we talk about the directing, but I think the writing is mm-hmm. just better. Yeah. In Guardians of the Galaxy than the word and really, mm-hmm. I, I think the only writing that I've seen in a superhero movie you could compare it to probably would be the Spider-Man mm-hmm. movies, the new Spider-Man movies with Tom Holland. Yeah. Are the only other series I can think of that has similar quality and ability to totally shift. Yeah like this movie does Mm -hmm. you know and it helps that like i said you have such a wide array of characters who are all very different Mm -hmm. from each other yeah yeah and with any of the ensemble casts the chemistry between the cast has to be there and and as it was in the first two it's it's absolutely right there again in this one and 
their understanding of the characters and and like you're saying them being able to use the characters in ways that absolutely make sense for the characters uh really works well mm-hmm. i think for them for sure um anything that doesn't doesn't work for you or anything you didn't like about it i can't really pinpoint anything that i disliked about this movie honestly <laughs> if i think about it i i can't say this is I don't like it. There's one thing I don't like, but I don't know that I don't like it in terms, it doesn't affect my ability to enjoy the movie. It just, I, and I mentioned this when we did our live reaction is it's an ending movie without endings. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, I think the biggest thing with it, it's an ending movie with no endings. It's very clear that this is their ending for this group of people working mm-hmm. together, but they really can't end it. Yeah, <laughs> like there's not really an end. They just kind of kind of go their separate ways. But they're like the emotional weight that they're building up to then doesn't quite pay off in the in the same mm-hmm. way as if there were ended up being actual real big consequences as a result. So I think you lose a little bit of the of the tension and the emotion they create super well through the vast majority of the movie because they didn't feel like they could adequately wrap up these characters and these storylines, which I think goes into the larger picture of MCU and, and where this movie sits in mm-hmm. MCU. Um, so what, what are your, I mean, do you have a comment on that or do you want to just jump into where it fits in MCU? Um, yeah, it's, I, I am curious where it's going. Yeah. And that's kind of the discussion here because the very end of the movie, we see that, they say star lord is coming back which <laughs> i don't think anyone really expected yeah or anticipated i think that's kind of a surprise yeah so i'm not really sure where that's going yeah um and i wonder if uh rocket if they're going to do something with him to now or is that just closing the chapter of him being the new leader and that's just like where they end that yeah because i could see them just ending that there I don't think that's necessarily going anywhere. Yeah. And um, I think it became apparent. Like I, and see if you got these vibes. I got these vibes like that, that ending scene where they're all kind of partying and dancing and they've mm-hmm. overthrown, um, they've thrown off the shackles and everything's great. It very much reminded me of the scene from Return of the Jedi, that party scene on Endor, mm-hmm. you know, where everyone's celebrating, partying around. But that felt like a wrap-up. Like, yeah. that was a wrap-up. That was a wrap-up in which the characters don't die. Mm-hmm. So that's one of, that's one of the, the reasons where it's like, okay, that's what immediately draws the comparisons. Like, you wrapped up something, it felt final, but the characters are still around. Mm-hmm. And it just, it didn't quite land there because it, it just, I think, and I brought this up the other day, I think, I think they're intentionally not, wrapping up these storylines because they feel like they might need them later mm-hmm. <laughs> and they don't want to they don't want to curtail themselves because i think they're struggling with phase four as to what to do with it and what's going to work and and what isn't working and they want to leave themselves options without writing themselves into a corner late and that they have to then undo later mm-hmm. and so i think this particular movie is slightly hurt by the lack of direction for phase four in general. Yeah. 
But I think also, and I mean, broadly speaking, we talked about this, but in some ways, the Guardians movies are out of phase. Like, yeah. They're not really impacted necessarily as much as mm-hmm. some of the other movies by what's happening yeah. in the in the broader world. Mm-hmm. It's true. Yeah. All right. How many of these characters do you think you see in future movies? Obviously, Star-Lord. They've initiated mm-hmm. that Star-Lord is coming back. How many of the other characters do you think you see in later movies? Uh, I don't know if there's going to be a whole lot. I like to me the showing Rocket leading the team mm-hmm. is kind of a finale to me because I don't think mm-hmm. Bradley Cooper's coming back. Yeah. So if he's not coming back, I don't see Groot coming back necessarily. And I don't really see like maybe Nebula or Gamora, maybe Drax, but mm-hmm. I I know um Dave Batista has had some issues too with things. So I and he's basically said he's yeah, done. I don't see him coming back. So, so yeah. Um I really it just makes me wonder what um, Chris Pratt's character will be doing. Yeah. 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 We'll see. I kind of love to see like a Chris Pratt fish out of water <laughs> um, trying to be involved on planet Earth again as a normal guy. Maybe. Yeah. That'd be hilarious. That could be interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. All right. That is our Guardians of the Galaxy uh more intense breakdown um if you have not gotten a chance to see guardians of the galaxy make sure you do so at your earliest convenience it's well worth the watch it really is a good entertaining movie uh perfect for the summer all right let's shift over to our second discussion item that is installment number two of our mission impossible uh revisit series and we're on mission impossible two uh, this is an interesting one. This is an interesting movie. It's an inch sits in an interesting place in the collection. Uh, so I'm looking forward to breaking this down a little bit. Uh, but we'll start out by giving the basic stats of the movie. Uh, Mission Impossible 2 came out May 24th, 2000. So this was four years after the original Mission Impossible movie. It had a budget of $125 million. It's opening weekend in the box office, it did $57.8 million. Domestically, it ran uh, a total of $215 million domestically and made $546 million uh, globally. It was also the highest grossing film of 2000, Hmm. which is really interesting. It came out the same month as Gladiator. Hmm. So highest grossing movie, of the year 2000 and is in fact the only one of the series to be the highest grossing movie of that particular year now some of that circumstance mm-hmm. but it's, it is interesting especially because what's interesting about this movie is it tends to be the most panned one both by fans and by uh general movie critics mm-hmm. uh so just a, a little bit of an update here uh the cast and director the director of this one was john woo the writers were Ronald Moore and Brandon Braga. Now, Ronald Moore and Brandon Braga are very well known to me because they were the showrunners on a lot of the Star Trek stuff. Hmm. They were involved heavily in Next Generation and Deep Space Nine. I think some in Voyager, too. Uh, they also wrote, um, they were heavily involved in, in writing uh, this, some of the or Star Trek Next Generation movies, uh, Generations, First Contact. Hmm. 
in that lane. So these guys are well known to me. In fact, I did not even realize they were involved in this project. Um, and so then the main cast, of course, you have Tom Cruise returning as Ethan Hunt. You have Tandy Newton as the character Nia Nordorf Hall. Uh, fun fact about this, it was actually Nicole Kidman, who was still married to Tom Cruise at the time, who suggested Tandy Newton hmm. for this role. And then uh, the writers actually ended up writing a lot of the character around her because uh, they had her on board. Mm -hmm. uh, Doug Ray Scott played uh, Sean Ambrose in this movie. Fun fact about this, because of the production overruns and how long it took them to film it, he had to back out of playing Wolverine in the X-Men. Huh. Can you imagine? Because Wolverine kind of made Hugh Jackman. Yeah. Can you imagine if that had been Doug Ray Scott instead of Hugh Jackman? Hmm. Would Doug Ray Scott have the same level of clout that Hugh Jackman now does? I don't know. Because I have not seen this guy in almost anything yeah. other than this. Yeah. It's fascinating what if scenario there. Uh, Ving Rains and John Polson uh, played the uh, character of Billy. Uh, in my mind, this is one of the least memorable characters in all of the Mission Impossible movies. Uh, fun fact here, uh, it was originally cast to be Steve Zahn. Hmm. But then uh, when delays happened, Steve Zahn had to back out of this one. So Steve Zahn, basically, and Simon Pegg basically played a similar yeah. role. Yeah. So had Steve Zahn in there, would we have Simon Pegg later in the series? Hmm. Interesting. So those are your main cast. Uh, basic plot for the movie. Uh, IMF agent Ethan Hunt is sent to Sydney to find and destroy a genetically modified disease called Chimera. Uh, basically, what happens is uh, right from the beginning of the movie, uh, you see the bad guys. They take a plane down. Um, they think they have, have got this virus with them and they're going to use it to blackmail the, the company that made it. Um, in order to deal with this, uh, IMF sends... Uh, Tom Cruise, Ethan Hunt, to recruit Nine Order of Hall. He thinks to recruit her uh, as her for her skills as a thief. In the meantime, he falls for her as he's recruiting her, only to be told that her job is to go back and resume a relationship with her ex-boyfriend, who is Sean Ambrose, mm -hmm. who was the one who jacked the plane and stole the virus. Uh, from that point, they play a cat and mouse game back and forth between Ambrose and Hunt. Ambrose was a former IMF agent, or actually a current IMF agent that's gone rogue. And the character of Naya gets caught in the middle constantly between the two of them. And finally, they face off in a contest over the virus and the cure. And uh, the plot line for, for Naya's character and the plot line for this movie is loosely based on the Hitchcock film Notorious, hmm. which actually... Um, at one point, uh, right after the movie came out, there was a uh, there was a column from the L.A. Times where they were basically calling him out for it. And then the uh, the guy who came in and finished up the screenplay wrote back and disputed all of it. But there's no doubt like they they admit that they they based some of it off the Hitchcock film Notorious. All right, Rob. So general observations. What are some observations from Mission Impossible 2? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh... So this is not really a word I've heard it used to describe certain soccer performances mm. in the past. So um, to me, Mission Impossible 2 is an absolute disaster class of a movie. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's going to need more explanation. We got to unpack that. Yeah. I mean, 
there there just seems a whole lot in the movie that's ham fisted to me the the constant switching of the face masks to mm-hmm. show us who's being who yeah like let the audience figure that out at some point you don't have to show us every single time like some of it just seem seems obvious like we should know what's happening that's one of the things that stands out most to people the constant yeah. mass switching yeah and mm-hmm. you know i know john woo but the dubs everywhere especially <laughs> in, the, in the evil guys facility like apparently underground there's just like this huge colony of doves just living in their building that yeah. they just yeah you know they just Why not? kill with yeah <laughs> um the whole the whole plot line of forcing her to go back with her ex-boyfriend who like rapes her like i <laughs> yeah she doesn't have semi according, according to her own volition really like it's really disturbing yeah um what mm-hmm. they make the character do yeah and it it definitely builds attention into the storyline but yeah. is that really the best way to do yeah. that yeah um i just like I, I don't find a lot redeemable about this movie. It's just, <laughs> I, um, yeah. For so I, I've yeah, I've, I have to rewatch all of them uh-huh. still. But my from my recollections, like this by far is the worst one mm-hmm. for me of the mm-hmm. series. Mm-hmm. Uh one question I forgot. When did you first see this film? I think I saw it like. I don't think I saw this one in the theater either. I think okay. it was like a couple, a year or so after it came out. Okay. Um. I saw this one in theaters, I think on opening weekend, because in the interim, I'd become a big fan of the previous movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, I came out right before I graduated, hmm. like less than a month before yeah. I graduated. So I do remember being in the theaters watching it. So, uh, yeah. Uh, we'll get to sp- some more specific strengths and weaknesses in a moment. Uh, any other specific observations? Um, not really. Okay. Uh what one thing that stands out to me is this is by far the most localized Mission Impossible film. Mm-hmm. There's a brief, there's a brief shot at the beginning of him rock climbing, and you know they filmed that in Utah, but like they don't really tell you where that place is in the movie. Uh, there's a scene in Seville where he's recruiting Naya, and then the rest of it is all in Australia. That's very, very different than any of the other Mission Impossible movies. Uh, it's very heavily based in Australia. Uh, so the world, the world traveling all over the place thing that become a hallmark of the film is really not present in this, in this film, which is another thing that makes it unique and different. Um, lots of slow-mo, mm-hmm. lots of slow-mo in this. And I'll talk about this when I talk about one of the things I, I like about this movie, but yeah, there's lots of slow-mo scenes. Um interspersed throughout usually when characters are interacting for the first time uh so that's that's often done it has much warmer tones than most of the other ones there's lots of oranges reds um as opposed to a lot of cold cold light mm-hmm. in, in the original um so that was intentional by john Woo. he wanted to make a warmer film and he certainly succeeded in that it's definitely color wise tone wise it's a lot warmer Maybe you should have set it on fire. Warm. <laughs> Indeed. Um, what's interesting about this is there's, I don't know if there's a bigger contrast in styles between Mission Impossible and Mission Impossible 2 
throughout the entire film. I mean, you could say maybe from two to three also, but that kind of just anchors the fact that two is unique and different. Um, it's up in the air to me as to which one is the most unique, this one or the original Mist and Impossible. Uh, but they're both very, very different films. And this was intentional. Tom Cruise, at this point in the series, he he basically told John Woo, he said, uh, I want each episode of this series to look and feel entirely different. Kind of like you're directing, your, uh, you know, this is this director's version. This is this director's version. At the time, that was what he wanted. He didn't want a remake of the exact same feel for the first one. Um, so that's what John Woo did. And it definitely has John Woo's style to it. It's also definitely widely regarded as most people's least favorite Mission Impossible film. Now, there are some people that would say three, but uh, mm -hmm. I would say if 90% of people, if you ask them their ranking who are fans of it, this one's going to be their least favorite. Uh, I tend to be more of a defender of this. Not that I don't agree with the criticism, but I, I among my friend group, I have uh, I've had many conversations where uh, the, the hate raining down on this movie <laughs> is severe, and I'm the one standing there, like, trying to hold it up a little bit. Uh, so I don't hate this movie as much as, as much as others do, but I absolutely understand the, the weaknesses of the film. Mm -hmm. Uh, strengths. What is there anything you liked about the film? Anything that stood out to you? Anything you enjoyed? I mean, I don't, I don't know if you mentioned his name in the rundown of the characters, but Brendan Gleeson's I did not character mm -hmm. as kind of the man in the shadows behind everything. I think he does a good job of playing mm -hmm. that because um, it's pretty understated, but pretty uh, mm -hmm. pretty. Um, he was the head of Biosite, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like pretty impactful and pretty malignant, and mm -hmm. you know, just a bad dude. Yeah. <laughs> To me, he's a better bad guy than um, Sean Ambrose's character mm. is a bad guy. Sean, the Sean Ambrose character to me feels like kind of car caricature. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's just like, oh, there's this abusive bad guy. Like, <laughs> yeah. There's no depth to that yeah. character. There's no, there's no, there's nothing redeemable about him. In he my feels overacted at yeah. times too. He feels overacted and like he's attempting to be a super idiot. Mm -hmm like uh in particular the scene where he's like chopping off his henchman's like fingernail and it's just like like the goal of that scene is to try and create that this is a bad dude but it just feels it just feels like they're trying too hard on that mm -hmm. um now uh but we're not we're talking we'll, we'll get some more weaknesses in a second but uh strengths one thing i thought was you can say it's a negative or you can say it's a positive, but it isn't a unique independent feel of the film. Um, it doesn't feel like any of the other films. Mm -hmm. uh, so from that standpoint, there is a uniqueness element to it. It sits in a unique spot in the collection. Um, another one is there is there is a strong relational emotional connection between Ethan and Naya. And both on a positive and negative sense. Like you, even when she's mad at him, you get the sense that she's mad at him because she cares mm -hmm. and, and vice versa. Yeah. And there's that tension between the two of them uh, that I think is well done and feels and feels good and feels legitimate yeah, I mean, I, from well, that standpoint. So one of the best moments I think of the movie is when they're at the racetrack and he says, don't turn around. She turns around and starts straight. <laughs> yeah. And that really encapsulates the... Mm -hmm the back and forth between them and the high level yeah of emotion because they're both not happy with yeah 
the situation as it is mm-hmm. and wish it could be different. But if you if you're really that person and you're that invested in caring about the person's well-being, like would you really go so far as to let them do what they're doing? I don't know. It's tough. And they they do get they do milk a lot of tension out of that. And and it is a tension running storyline throughout as to the mission needs to succeed, but I don't like it. This is in here, but it's just so it works from an emotion and tension standpoint. It's just uncomfortable (laughs) and probably is supposed to be uncomfortable. Uh, I do like the opening. I think the opening is a classic Mission Impossible opening full of action and I like that juxtaposition where you go from plane crash to Ethan hanging out on the side of a mountain. It's like mm. you you just know, like right from the first five minutes, you're into it. You're into a Mission Impossible movie. It probably that sequence probably feels most like Mission Impossible uh, as anything in the movie does. Mm-hmm. Uh, the soundtrack is really good. It's very, very early 2000s uh, yeah. soundtrack. They they redid the anthem with Limp Biscuit. It was, of course, massive in the late 90s, early 2000s. Uh, also, the appearance of a uh, song written for the movie by Metallica, mm. which I have a fun fact about that later. Uh, and, of course, Sydney. I like that. I like Sydney. Sydney is a cool looking city. And it's one mm-hmm. of the first movies in the modern era to really feature Sydney. Yeah. Uh, there's a bunch of movies that were shot in Sydney that use it as like generic city or something like mm-hmm. that. But it really does. It feature Sydney. And this is kind of. I don't know. I don't know if the right word is the height of Sydney, but this was the scene. This movie came out the same year the Olympics were held hmm. in Sydney. So this was like Sydney in its full preparation for uh, the world to come see it in the city. So it was a great time to have a movie come out set in Sydney. All right, more weaknesses. I mean, I, I elucidated many of them. Yeah, <laughs> mm-hmm. already. Yeah. Um, so I think that. Uh, much like Drax in the New Guardians of the Galaxy movie, Ethan Hunt in this movie definitely believes that it's not a trap when it's face off. <laughs> also, that's a John Woo reference to face off. Uh-huh. <laughs> yep. Probably American audiences just know that as his uh his yeah. signature movie there. But like this, I mean the whole movie is really like spy versus spy, like it's just guy against guy. Yeah. If you boil it down to yeah. spare bones. And I just, like I said, with the character of um, Sean Ambrose being so one dimensional, mm-hmm. it's really, really hard to get a lot of emotional weight or to care. Like when he dies, you're just like, okay. Yeah. Like he was going to die. Okay. Yeah. Like there's, there's nothing like you're not like, oh no, they shouldn't have done that. Like <laughs> you're rooting for him to get like uh, destroyed, like annihilated mm-hmm. at that point. So, when you have such a black and white movie like that, it's hard to be engaging, I think. Yeah. I think that's where it really struggled. I think that's my main criticism of it mm-hmm. would be that the way they wrote it, there's just not a lot to care about. Yeah. Maybe it may look nice. Mm-hmm. Like there may there are some cool sets. I do think they use Sydney well. Mm-hmm. I think there are some very good background characters, but just when you break it down to its bare elements, I don't think. Mm-hmm. there's a strong enough movie there yeah i actually like a lot of the cinematography on on this one and i forgot to say i forgot to say this in well no i'll get that coming up there's a lot of good cinematography about this um the 
the constant the two the two things that people often point to why they don't like this movie obviously the bad guy character um the mask changing and especially the flippant way in which they do it the other movies all have similar elements but they they manage to do it in such a way that brings the audience along um this one always felt like they're just throwing it in there they're just thrown away it's it's it just feels so forced and it feels so flippant as it were. Um, and the last thing is plot holes. Uh, there's a bunch of storylines that don't seem to connect or things that don't make a ton of sense. I mean, you can get a general sense of the story. I don't think, I mean, it's obvious they're there, but um, I'm a, I've, I've looked into this and I've done a lot, I've done some more research into this as to what went wrong on this film. Mm -hmm. And it's really fascinating. John Woo's original version of this film was three hours and 30 minutes. Wow. Three hours and 30 minutes. Uh, that doesn't work. No. <laughs> that doesn't work at all. Also, the original cut got a rated R. Hmm. So they had to, they, like, they were really struggling in post-production on this. Uh, they started doing on this film what, they ended up doing on a lot of the other films just better in which they have an idea of what the action sequences are going to be. And then they write a storyline around what the action sequences are going to be, but it just really, really wasn't working on this film. And they were writing and rewriting stuff all the way up until May of 2000. Hmm. And they brought in, they brought in another editor, Stuart Baird. They brought him in to like fix it and and you know when you're having to do major fixes in post-production that it's going to be a problem like he cut out over 40 minutes of the movie which is one of the reasons why it feels choppy and why you have so many plot holes is because he hasn't cut out so much content uh so he managed to cut it out to get into a length that made a little bit more sense um he cut out some of the violent action sequences um where uh, that, that ended up allowing it to be rated R. Uh, so he cut that down so they could get a PG-13 rating. And one of the twists he did was he really emphasized the romantic attachment between Naya and Ethan. That was not nearly as prominent in, in Wu's original hmm. cut. Uh, so there was a lot of kind of disaster and trying to fix it at literally the last possible moment. So I think a lot of what can be termed as issues on this film have to do with all of the production issues <laughs> mm -hmm. and the fact that i think john while john Wu is a good director i don't think he had any like he doesn't make he doesn't really make pg-13 movies to that point mm -hmm. and he really wasn't he it seemed like he didn't know how to make the movie properly and so then there was a lot of fixes that had to come in later so interesting uh memorable scenes uh, what what of the of the film they have, what sticks out to you as as memorable? So I actually uh, you referenced it when I talked about them meeting at the racetrack, but I think the whole racetrack mm -hmm. sequence in general, maybe it's memorable to me because it's so un understated, like it's just so normal, mm -hmm. as opposed to the rest of the movie, which is kind of just completely off the rails. <laughs> that um, you know, the sleight of hand, the stealing of the stuff from. Uh, Sean, the Sean Ambrose character in that moment, uh, it's more like it's more cloak and dagger spy stuff, which you know later movies in the series would go on to do even better. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so I think you're getting kind of like a preview of some some of the things that are to come in Mission Impossible. Yeah. Um, down the road, mm-hmm. and I I think that's probably like the best written section of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, that's like the most memorable. Like mm-hmm. there there are a lot of scenes that I remember, but I wouldn't say that I remember them for good reasons. <laughs> yeah. No, I think you're right. From a writing standpoint, I think that scene has the strongest writing in it. Um, the scene that stands out to me is the Seville scene when he's recruiting Naya, because I think it's the most beautifully shot scene. Um, you have that, you, you know, you have the flamenco dancers, you have the flamenco music in the background, and you have like the scene, and this is where he does a great job with the slow-mo is it slows down. You see the flamenco dancer's dress kind of filter over half the screen. And you see Ethan's face as he looks across the room. And then it pans around. And then you see Naya's face and the dress come around that side. And it's in slow motion. You see them make eye contact with each other. And then just snaps back into the action sequence. Um, Combine that with the... uh, the sequence where she's trying to rob the the necklace mm-hmm. and the back and forth there really established great character chemistry between the two of them right from the start. It's playful, it's fun, uh, but there's still an action element to it, and and it's lit. Like that's what we're talking about. That's one of the scenes that has the warmest lighting in it. I just thought it was a beautifully done sequence. Uh, so that's the one that stands out to mm-hmm. me from a from a visual standpoint. I like the the uh, penetrating biocyte to get the viruses mm-hmm. that the cool lighting and really good choreography in that scene as well. Uh, so those would be the two things I think would stand out. I mean, biocyte would make a really cool laser tag level. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> uh, anything else? Uh, no, not really. Okay. I just have two interesting tidbits uh, for the facts and other things. One is uh, the Metallica song. I disappear that debuted in this song it's the it was up until very recently it was the only soundtrack metallica had ever played on Hmm. and that song i disappear became the flashpoint over which metallica ended up suing napster which took napster down like the end of that whole torrent streaming thing that was Hmm. going on that was like the that was like the key moment right there with that song and uh, the original director of this film was originally supposed to be Oliver Stone. Oliver Stone signed on. They had a they had one of his one of his proteges wrote in almost an entire script for the movie, and the script didn't work at all. It was crazy, um, and they ended up throwing it out. And Oliver Stone left left the project. Uh, so you almost got an Oliver Stone directed Mission Impossible. All right, that is our wrap-up of uh, Mission Impossible 2. And we'll close out today with our watch list. What'd you watch? So I went, obviously we went and saw Guardians of the Galaxy 3 and then went and saw it again last night. Um, In between, I went back and watched the first Guardians of the Galaxy. Mm. And I think that the movie had, the new one had even more emotional weight for me after watching the original one because... Mm. uh, in that original movie, you're introduced to the character of Rocket and this, like, not foul mouth, but like aggressive, like angry, mm-hmm. violent raccoon. Yeah. Who won't admit he's a raccoon <laughs> who's just like belligerent, angry at everyone, angry at the world. Yeah. And having seen the new movie, there's so much more understanding of why he was that way. Yeah. 
for sure. And I think that seeing the new movie with the context of the original lent even more weight to that mm-hmm. whole story for me. Yeah. So um, if you have not seen the other two Guardians of the Galaxy movies, you absolutely need to see them. <laughs> um, for me, to for me, I think. I still think the first one is the best one. I think the third one that just came out is probably the second best. I think they're close. Mm-hmm. I think the second one is probably the the least strong of the three, but it's still not a bad movie. Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, I watched a couple over the last couple of weeks here, and uh, one is The Midnight Sky. It's a Netflix movie starring and directed by George Clooney. Basically, the idea is he is at a he is in an Antarctic station. And a global plague comes out and just basically is wiping everybody out. But he is part of a radio tower that's supposed to be in contact with spaceships that are still trying to return to Earth. And so there's a dialogue between him and the spaceship trying to see what they're what they're going to do. In the meantime, he has to in order to contact them, he finds this little girl and he's got to escort this little girl across Antarctica to be able to contact the spaceship. Um, it's okay. Uh, I think the biggest issue for me with the movie was there's not a lot of chemistry between him and the kid. Like he's spending all this time with this girl and, and it's supposed to be like, you know, the backstory is he, he supposedly had lost a daughter and then, or was not involved with her. And this kid is coming along and at first he doesn't want he doesn't want to be around her and then he's realized okay i've got to take her with me but there's just a lot of chemistry and it, it's the second movie along with mercury rising i've watched recently mm-hmm. where there's supposed to be chemistry between a kid and an adult actor a well-known actor in that case it was bruce willis that just didn't get off the ground mm-hmm. and so that's multiple movies i've seen recently where the chemistry between the kid actor and and the famous actor didn't work and I contrast that with a movie like Jurassic Park that had a very similar storyline where Sam Neill's character doesn't like kids, doesn't want to be around kids, and then finds himself alone with the kids in a survival situation, which is what those other two movies had. But it worked so well. Mm-hmm. And you see the bond form between him and those kids. And it's just curious to me as to why that sometimes works and why it doesn't, how much of that's the actors, how much that's the writing. I'm just curious about that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, saw that one. Uh, saw Flatliners, the 2017 version of Flatliners. Uh, interesting movie. Um, I like the final points are about like the, the moral of the story is like, okay, the stuff you have unresolved in your past will come back to get you if you don't resolve it. And your life is so much better if you're willing to go take the responsibility for it and make amends. They don't connect it whatsoever mm. with the act of flatlining like there's just yeah. they're just like they miss the whole section how does this connect with this it just doesn't so yeah so that's what i watched nice all right you got anything else i don't okay that is the show thank you for watching film for fans and make sure you check out filmforfans.com I know I've been lazy, but in the next day or so, the first review, the written review of Mission Impossible uh, will be up on the website in the next day or so. And very soon after, we'll get the one up for Mission Impossible 2. So make sure you check out phoneforfans.com. Like, share, tell your friends, all that good stuff. And until next time, enjoy the movies.